I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, We're continuing our series in the life and theology of the Apostle Paul, and given that it's Communion Sunday, I thought I would do uh, Paul's theology of the Lord's Supper, as you see here in your bulletin. We're going to be looking at verses 23 to 29. We'll also probably be stopping at Matthew 26 as well. We'll hear now the word of the Lord. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on a night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Father, it's our desire to take communion in a worthy manner. And so we ask, Lord, that you would teach us now from your word by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you've heard me on several occasions now share my testimony, be it from the pulpit here or in or smaller gatherings, and I share with you how I got saved. I got excited about wanting to learn the Bible, and so I needed to learn a lot, and so I went off to Bible college and, and learned many things. And one of the things that I learned, and didn't know I needed to learn it, but I, I did, was what is communion all about? I had been a Roman Catholic growing up, and so I took communion there, and after I became a believer in Jesus Christ, I took communion um, in my church, and I kind of knew the basics. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, right? You believe that Jesus died on the cross, and so you're remembering what Jesus did for you, uh, um, the fact that he paid for your sins, and so you're thinking about that, and that's what communion does, that the bread reminds us and the wine reminds us of that. Well, one particular Sunday, I was at church, uh, I remember it, I not exactly where I was, but I remember this happening, was the pastor was addressing the congregation for communion, and there was music playing in the background, and he explained um, that this was a time to remember what Christ had accomplished for you on the cross, and then he made this comment, if you don't cry during communion, I don't know how you can be saved. Well, I began looking around, and there, there was a few sobbing people, I guess. Nothing wrong with that. Um, I, in fact, I thought, boy, they just really love their Lord. But there were no tears in my eyes. Um, I didn't feel the sadness. Uh, I believed that Christ died for me. That was true, but I wasn't really that sad about it at the moment. I mean, I, mean, I was grateful that he took my sins upon himself. And I guess if I would have thought about it more, I would have been a little sad. I mean, Jesus died. He suffered for me, but it didn't make me cry. I tried. didn't work. 
Uh, I thought of the nails um, on the cross and what he went through before being crucified. No tears came. The emotional music was there, but it didn't help in this instance. It seems to help in movies, but it didn't help me at communion. And so I had to ask myself, do I really believe? I mean, that's what the pastor said. How could I be so tearless in the face of the fact that I am remembering that my Savior died for me? Maybe the pastor's right. I'm not saved. Well, there was some introspection there, and then I got some counsel from other mature Christians and myself, and I concluded after those conversations that the problem wasn't with me. It was the way the pastor was wording what he said. We are to take communion in a worthy manner. That's what we just read. That's important. But notice that tears aren't one of the qualifications for that. And yet over the years, I have heard similar statements like this made over and over again by Christians and and some pastors, and it kind of demonstrates the vast confusion that exists when it comes to what we are doing when we take the Lord's Supper. What is it all about? I mean, it's not hard to imagine, is it? On a Sunday like today, communion Sunday, hearing a child, maybe a child would ask the question, Mom, Dad, why is that food being passed around? There's nothing disrespectful about asking that question. Why does he say it's the body and blood of Christ? That seems a little confusing, I'm sure, for children. What's going on? Can I have some? Uh, They're all good questions. They're all important questions. And and we probably have similar questions, or at least we've had in the past. Is there a difference when we take communion and when Roman Catholics take communion and when Baptists take communion, um, non-denominational people, when they take communion? Uh, Is there a difference in our belief? Uh, When we eat the bread and, 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 and drink the wine, what actually happens? Is something mystical happening? Um... Or is it just a reminder that Jesus died? Uh, One of the questions that often comes up when it comes to communion, because you've heard and you read the text and you read what Jesus says about it, and, and the question is, is Jesus especially here when we take communion? And what am I supposed to be thinking about? If that's true and it's so important, what am I supposed to be thinking about? What am I supposed to focus on during communion? What's my role? And they're all important questions, and I'm sure you have different ones. And having a correct answer is vitally important because Paul says that we can be guilty of partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. In fact, verse 29 says you can actually bring judgment upon yourself. And so understanding the theology of the Lord's Supper, as Paul teaches us here, is crucial as a Christian. That's why we're going to take a look at it this morning. Now, some context. I think last week I mentioned that Paul wrote the book of Corinthians sometime around 53 to 55 A.D. And right around the same time, most scholars believe that the Gospels were written sometime between 50 and 60. Now, there's much debate over this. The point I'm making here is that many scholars believe Corinthians was written before the Gospels. And that Paul's words here are the earliest account uh, uh, of the Lord's Supper we have. And that Paul's words are, 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 are kind of explaining what the Lord's Supper was like. In fact, one writer states, it is the earliest record of any words of Jesus and one of very few incidents in, easy, in his earthly life which Paul describes. 
Now, Paul here claims to have received these words. Now, verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now, this could mean that he heard them through oral tradition, right? Somebody remembered being there with the apostles, the disciples, and they passed it on to others, and then Paul heard that. That's one way to understand it. But it's more likely that he literally received it directly from the Lord. Remember, Paul received direct revelation from Christ. We read that in Galatians chapter 1. He says, I did not receive the gospel from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is going to share here now with the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper was an actual conversation he had with the resurrected Christ. Why do I say all that? It shows the significance, how vitally important this is. Paul just told the Corinthians in verses 17 to 22 that they were making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. It was supposed to be a fellowship meal when they came together. There was no sense of being a family in the Lord, though. Each group kind of kept to themselves. The food was not shared. And some managed to even get drunk. And so Paul concludes, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Do you sense how seriously Paul took the Lord's Supper? It isn't something that we take lightly. It isn't a house party. They're not at home here. They're gathered for worship. I remember when I first got saved, maybe a year or two in, I, I, I went to a youth camp. I was taking a group of teens to camp, and we were up in the mountains, and the first thing we were to do is get everybody set up in their dorms, and then we were going to gather for communion. And so that's what I did. I got all the students ready, and I entered the room where we're going to have communion, and I noticed that the youth pastor was using cookies and soda uh, for communion. And he handed them out by throwing them to the kids, and they, everybody was making jokes. And, I, I, you know, I took the kids and I left. Now, see, I can imagine at that moment, this is what I, I don't know if I was thinking it then, but I'm thinking it now, that Paul would have said to these youth pastors, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. It's not a time for goofing about. And so Paul confronts the Corinthians, and he confronts them with the teaching he received directly from Jesus. Look at verse 23. Picking up there, we'll read to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, as we read that, I'm sure you realize that Paul is describing that historical moment Before Jesus was crucified, when he ate his final meal with his disciples, and he instituted the Lord's Supper. And so if we're going to understand Paul's theology of the Lord's Supper, and then we need to turn to the Gospels where it talks about the Lord's Supper to get that historical background. We see that in Mark 14, we read it in Luke 22, and as I mentioned, Matthew 26. And so I'm going to quickly look at Matthew 26. 
And the first thing I want you to notice in Matthew 26, what is vitally important when it comes to understanding the Lord's Supper is when it was instituted. In verse 17 of Matthew 26, we read, Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? It's the first day of unleavened bread is when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. And so Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper on the night of the Passover. While thousands throughout the city of Jerusalem gathered around the table to remember that time when God stretched out his mighty hand and he delivered his people. Well, Jesus is gathered around the table with his disciples here in the upper room for the same meal. He announces, I'm going to be betrayed soon. That's what we read in verse 21. He he knows that he's going to have to endure the cross and that this will be his last Passover meal. And so he uses this occasion to institute the Lord's Supper. And this isn't a mere coincidence. It didn't just happen to fall on this day. Christ intentionally associates the Old Testament Passover with the institution of the Lord's Supper. In fact, he uses the same elements associated with the Passover, bread and wine. And so these are the the bread and wine of the Passover meal. And so if you're going to understand Paul's theology of the Lord's Supper, then you've got to understand that historical moment when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, and you've got to understand that he was looking back in the Old Testament to the book of Exodus when the Passover first happened. The time of Moses when the Passover was instituted. Now I want you to think of the Passover. It it was the main feast of the Jewish religious calendar. It it commemorated the night God passed over Israel when when the the death angel destroyed the firstborn of Egypt. You you know the story during that plague God sent to Egypt. We read about it in Exodus 12. God passed over the Israelites, sparing their lives, here it is, for the sake of the blood of the lamb painted on the doorposts, Exodus 12, 13. The lamb there in Passover was a sacrificial lamb. And so on the night of the actual Passover, it was a sacrifice. And then immediately afterward, it turned into a meal commemorating Israel's deliverance. It was a perpetual memorial for the covenant community uh, of the salvation that God secured for the Israelites in, uh, in Egypt then. And so you see, beloved, the meal that the Israelites had in Egypt during the Passover night was the meal of redemption. In faith, they took that meal anticipating that the exodus would take place. It was before the exodus. And then after that initial Passover, the meal was celebrated every year looking back on the Lord's redemption. It was a perpetual memorial. And so you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, you know that lamb that was sacrificed? You know that lamb that was sacrificed and whose blood served as a sign on the doorpost keeping the death angel away? Well, that lamb... And all the lambs since that were sacrificed through the years during the Passover meal, they all point to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so here is Jesus standing, or or as may be depicted and understood, he's lounging at the table with his disciples at this last Passover meal before his crucifixion. 
And he's basically saying to them, you've done this for years. Israel's done this for years. I'm the Passover lamb. I'm the Passover lamb. This is why Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, calls Jesus Christ our Passover. Christ was the sacrifice, and he gave us the meal to commemorate his sacrifice. And he linked the bread and the wine of the Passover meal to his death. And so the Passover points to Jesus. It's not a a Hebrew religious thing. It was always meant to point to Jesus. It always uh, foreshadowed the blood of Christ on the cross. In Christ, all that was promised in the Passover reached its consummation. It always pointed to him. And so uh, communion is a perpetual memorial, looking back at Christ's death on our behalf. And so Jesus says, we are to do this in remembrance of me. When we eat the bread and we, we drink the wine, we're remembering that Christ died for our salvation. When we, when we eat the bread and drink the wine, we, we recognize it just like Israel recognize that through that their salvation came so their bondage they were set free from so we have our salvation so we are set free from the bondage of sin and so communion when we take it says remember 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 but understand biblically speaking remembering as one writer said isn't just a mental exercise Remembering his death is different from recalling mentally his death. Uh, You know, in your mind, you're kind of picturing the hill and you're remembering what happened. For many people, uh, I'm sure for you it has been for me, the Lord's Supper is more than kind of a mental stroll back in history. You're holding the bread and the the cup and you remember, yeah, he he died on a cross. I kind of get the picture. And And if you've seen movies, you're probably picturing those movies. Um, and, and, and it's meant to what? It, to, to prompt in you this desire to live for God. And maybe, maybe if you're you know, really a strong Christian, you'll shed some tears. But that is not what remembering means in the Bible. If, if that was the meaning, then the purpose of the Lord's Supper would be all about you. All about how you respond. All about how you feel. All about you. But that's not what remembering means. Christ isn't saying, don't forget the past, as if like at any point, oh, good thing we had communion this week. I forgot that Jesus died. He's not, he's not saying that. Don't forget what I accomplished through the, uh, the death on the cross. He's saying, don't forget that, the death on the cross. Don't forget that that's where your redemption comes from. Remembering is contrasted with forgetting. That would we would expect. And when it comes to what God does in our life, forgetting is sin. It's unbelief. It's ingratitude. Remembering what Jesus has done in our life is an act of faith, and it it shows gratitude. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are professing faith in Christ. Biblically speaking, when the Bible tells us to remember, to remember is to believe God, and particularly here, to believe in the gospel. And so it's no surprise that when we turn to Paul's explanation of the Lord's Supper, he calls it a proclamation. It's a perpetual memorial, remembering. 
and it's also a proclamation. He says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he goes on to say, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That means to announce. It, it, it means to speak out about. It, it carries the idea of reporting and telling of a conviction that you have. By partaking of the bread and the wine, you are proclaiming. You're kind of placarding. You're kind of preaching the gospel to all those assembled here with us and, and, and showing how it relates to the truths of the gospel. In a very real sense, the Lord's Supper is another sermon. See, when you take the bread and the wine and then you pass it to your neighbor, I know we're not doing it that way now, but you understand when you pass it to your neighbor, what you're saying to your neighbor as you partake is you're preaching the gospel to them. It's not time to manipulate your motions. It's time to rejoice. Yes, it's not a house party. We're not to goof about. But communion is a time to celebrate. It's a time to celebrate and proclaim and remember what Christ accomplished in the past. It's a time to celebrate and proclaim and remember what he'll accomplish in the future. And it's a time to celebrate and proclaim and remember what he's accomplishing even now in your life. Do you understand that communion has a past, a future, and a present aspect to it? I'm going to look at these quickly. First, we're, we're, we're celebrating, we're, we're, we're proclaiming, we're kind of remembering our past forgiveness. That one we kind of get, we understand that. This is what the bread and the wine are saying to you. They're looking, when you take the bread and the wine by faith, you're, it, it's saying you're forgiven. As surely as you take that bread, you are forgiven. That's what I've said. If you come to the table by faith in Christ alone, I've said this, I'll say it in a moment. Then as surely as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you can be assured that you are forgiven. Not because the bread and the wine save you, but it's a, it, it's a symbol, it's a picture of what Christ has done for you. Did not Jesus say, drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it by faith, and you can know that you are forgiven. Second, it has this future aspect. At the Lord's Supper, we're anticipating a time when Christ, who is our Passover lamb, will return as the Lion of Judah. And we'll be free from sin forever. We are, we are proclaiming the Lord's death, Paul says, till he comes. Verse 26. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper, there should be this aspect of expectation. We're looking forward to the time when our salvation will be complete and the Lord's Supper will no longer be necessary. We're looking forward to the time when we're going to see Jesus face to face. We're looking forward to a time when we will be in the fullness of his presence in complete communion with him without any barrier from sin. See, in this sense, the Lord's Supper... It's kind of a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. We read about that in Revelation 19. This is what we read there. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so you see this imagery. We're the bride. 
and we're in these beautiful, pure, and bright uh, clothing, which is, is sig- signifying our good deeds, our righteous deeds of serving Christ. And the angel says to him, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Now see, that's a celebration that we should all long for. That's a celebration we should long for. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we, we get a, a small taste, a, a picture of that future celebration. And so it's past-oriented, but it's future-oriented. And third, it's present-oriented. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating, we're proclaiming, we're remembering that Christ has not left us as orphans. He's not left us alone. He's working in our lives now. We are reminded uh, of the communion we have with Jesus through the Holy Spirit and the Spirit working in us, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. This is why we don't just say the Lord's Supper is a memorial service because Christ is indeed present. He is here in a special way during communion. Now, Christ, the second person of the triune God, in his flesh is in heaven. His human flesh can only be at one place, and it's in heaven. But the Spirit doesn't know those bounds. And so the Spirit is here among us. See, the bread and the wine are not only intended to invoke in your mind the recollection of his death. It's to remind you that he's here. And that's the, the kind of the emotional view. I'm doing all the work. I look back, and it's just about me and how I feel. That's not true. And then there's the opposite end. This is the Roman Catholic view. This is the, the view I grew up with, that the bread and the wine become the actual literal body and blood of Christ. And so you're actually feeding on the actual body and blood of Christ. This is why at a, at a Catholic church, or at least traditional Catholic churches, I haven't been there in a while, but the, the, the priest would have to drink all the wine if there was wine left over because it's, it's been transformed into the body and um, the blood of Christ. Well, we don't believe that either. Um, like I said, Christ's body is in heaven. We're not feasting on his literal body. See, we believe, and this is what the Reformed churches believe, that Christ is present in a special way during communion. And we do believe we feast on Christ during communion, but we feast on Christ by faith through the Holy Spirit. Now, this is confusing, I understand, and I'll I'll lay out the main point of that. But this is what one writer says. Just as believers fed on the Passover lamb as the true lamb of God, Christ is really, truly present in the supper. In the supper, believers feed on Christ's body and blood through faith by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is here in a special way, not in the bread and wine literally, but through his spirit. And although his body's in heaven, as I said, his spirit knows no boundaries. And so we are spiritually fed by the Lord. When we take the bread and the wine, they're just physical elements, outward elements. But when we take them by faith, Christ, through his Holy Spirit, works in us his grace. He, he communicating to us all the benefits of our salvation. I don't like this term, but I'll, I'll use it just for the sake of explaining. He's infusing, as it were, his life in us. He's giving us life. He is nourishing our souls. He's refreshing our souls for eternal life by his 
poured out blood. He's pledging. He's pledging to give himself to you and all the blessings of his death and resurrection. And so in that sense, we can say you're eating and drinking salvation. You're eating and drinking forgiveness. You're eating and drinking new life in Christ. Now, I realize you didn't get all that. I don't know if I got all of it, and I wrote it. But I realize it's hard to follow, especially that last part on Christ being present, what that actually means. It would take a lot of time, but it's hard to comprehend, especially experientially. But, but let me just make an overarching point. Remember this. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, remember this. What happens is ultimately not about you. It's not about you. It's about what God has done for you. It's not your body given for him, and so you have to manipulate yourself to really, really feel sorry that Jesus had to die for you, and you really, really want to live for him. It's not your body given for him. It's his body given for you. Your role is not to conjure up some fleeting emotions by picturing Jesus on the cross. Your role is to receive, by faith, the blessings of Christ's redemption. See, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you're not working your way up to Christ in heaven. It's Christ coming down to you by the Holy Spirit. That's the blessing of the Lord's Supper. It's not a service so much that we invite Jesus to. It's a service he invites us to. And, And that's what we're partaking of. It's a service where he seeks communion with you. And so that's the theology of Paul when it comes to the Lord's Supper. It's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Passover meal. It points to the covenant, the new covenant in Christ's blood. It points to Christ's crucifixion. It it points to Christ's communion with us. It it points to Christ's consummation when he'll return for us at the end of time and take us to be with himself forever. It's a sign. It's a seal of his salvation, past, present, and future. It's a covenant of renewal. And so... It's not about you. It's what he has done for you. However, even though it's not about you, there is a role that you play. You're not passive. It's not like in the Roman Catholic Church where you could just come in and anybody that happens to get the changed bread into the body of Christ will get grace. You're not passive. You must come to the table by faith. You must come, as we read, in a worthy manner and receive the elements. Remember, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper strengthens faith that is already there. It's a renewal covenant. It doesn't give you new life. Just by taking it, you don't get saved. It strengthens the spiritual life that's already in you if you're a believer. It doesn't give you saving grace. It gives you sanctifying grace where it helps you to grow and mature. It doesn't give you faith. It increases the faith you have. And so what's of first importance when you come to take the Lord's Supper, as we will, is that you have a true conviction, a true conviction and faith in God's promises, particularly the gospel. Paul says you must examine yourself. He says, test how genuine your motives and understanding are. You see, the key to taking the supper in a worthy manner is not what you believe in respect to yourself, Am I loving enough? And do I really, really care enough in order to somehow make you worthy? What is of first importance is what you believe with respect to Christ. 
Do you have faith that Christ lived for you, imputing to you his righteousness? Do you have faith that Christ died for you, uh, uh, forgiving you of your sin? Do you have faith that Christ died and rose again? Do you believe the gospel? Do you have faith that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Do you have faith that his body was broken for you? Do you have faith that his blood was poured out for you? Do you have faith that he will come back again to take you home to be with him in heaven? Do you have faith that he has united him to yourself? And not only that, he's united all of us together in him. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And he calls us now to live in fellowship with them. Do you have faith? Do you believe the gospel? See, the reason why that's of first importance is because the message of the Word of God, the the gospel that I proclaim from here, is no different than the message that you have in the bread and the wine. And so if you don't believe the message that I proclaim, then you can't possibly believe in the message of the Lord's Supper, and so you shouldn't partake. We pray that you will believe. We pray that. But until you do, the supper is not for you. But if you do believe it, I'll close with this. If you have examined yourself and believe you're united to Christ by faith, and you want an answer then, I mean, you've said a lot, Pastor. What is my role then in taking communion? What should I be thinking about? Let me just share a few things, three things, quickly. Let your heart, let your your mind dwell upon, and your faith, let your faith be strengthened by the truth that in Christ, as you partake, you're reminded that Christ has reconciled you to God and your sins are forgiven. We know that one. We understand that. But remember that. Believe it. It's true. Surely as you take the bread, it's true. He forgave you. Let your heart and mind dwell upon and your faith be strengthened by the truth that in Christ, that you presently are in communion with him and one another on earth. It's a spiritual union you have with him. And let your heart dwell upon and your faith be strengthened by the truth that in Christ you will not be left here as an orphan. Christ will indeed come back and return to take you to himself. That's what he says in John 14. And so remember his past work for you. Remember his future work of coming back in his consummation and bringing us our full salvation. And remember it right now. Right now, he in the present. He is working in your life. You see, communion gives you the opportunity to not only hear the good news of the gospel, but to see it, as it were, to to smell it, as it were, to taste it. That's what communion does. And so believe, have faith in Christ, and your soul will be fed by him through his spirit. Let's pray. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, we recognize that was much for us to comprehend. And yet how grateful we are that you do indeed condescend to us, as it were, and, and, and allow us to see the gospel and, and taste the gospel, as it were, as, as the bread and the wine are shared. Help us to take in a worthy manner as believers in fellowship with one another. May you receive all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.